Amen. Amen. Welcome, uh, family of Salem Chapel. My name is Will Plitt. Uh, it is a real joy to be with you this morning. Um, and we're just grateful that you're here, uh, whether in person, online, however you're joining us, listening in today. Uh, I'm really excited to get to this passage today. Uh, it's been incredibly um, equipping and formative, just spending time um, meditating on this as, as I prepared to preach this. Um, and so if you're new, uh, what we're doing is we're going through the Psalms of Ascent. We're in a series entitled Look Up. And here's what we've been saying, um, kind of the mega theme that resounds through all of these Psalms, that we are reminded to continually look to God and to trust Him for the things we can see and largely for the things that we can't see in our life. Knowing that he's good, he's for us, and he is with us. So if you brought one of these, go ahead and turn to Psalm 128 or type to it on your phone as you're turning or typing there. Let me tell you that um, there's a few psalms that are meant to be read together. So this Psalm 127 and 128, referred to as wisdom songs or psalms rather, are actually supposed to be read together. Though we're going to focus only on Psalm 128 today, I'm going to reference Psalm 127, but here's some homework I'd like to give you. Read, pray, meditate on Psalm 127 this week uh, in your quiet time uh, with the Lord. So I'm going to give you a, a kind of a, um, a, a statement here that is just a great way for you to remember Psalm 128. If you kind of cooked everything down, here's what it is. God loves to love us and bless us. God loves to love us and bless us. So I'd love to read Psalm 128 for us. Uh, as soon as I do that, I'm going to pray. And uh, we're going to get to work in this uh, glorious and wonderful passage of Scripture. Psalm 128, verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the promise of your word that as your word goes out, it fully accomplishes what you desire uh, to happen. Uh, Lord, as I've been praying uh, through this passage and about this morning, uh, I pray, Lord, that um, we would be a people that would just humble ourselves and surrender ourselves to you in this moment, uh, that we might walk with you uh, in this passage, that you have something to say to us. Uh, so, Lord, I pray you would unstop our ears, that you would remove the scales from our eyes, so we may more clearly hear and see you at work in our lives. Father, thank you for the reminder that um, the place of power with you is the place of dependency. Help us to be a dependent people upon you and what only you can do in and through and for us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Verse 1, uh, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. So, I'm going to start uh, by telling you what this is not. 
um, so that we can focus on what it is. When you read a passage of scripture and you, you encounter words like blessed, peace, uh, be well with you, prosperity, um, it can, in our American culture, really in our global context, wrongly think that words like this or a passage like this is associated with our affluence somehow. That, that the more fear I have in God, uh, and I would say an unhealthy fear that I have in God, the more um, I have an increase in my faith towards God and greater obedience to God should somehow in the end lead to an equation of greater health, wealth, prosperity in the materialistic sense. Now, there is a, a gospel uh, that is a false gospel that is proclaimed called the health and wealth gospel or the prosperity gospel. And it's a perversion of the good news. Uh, though they acknowledge some of the good news, um, they add to the good news because it claims that as my faith in God increases, that also he will reward me with an increase in my, in my health and wealth. So it means that the atonement of Christ um, includes not just the removal of sin, but it also includes the removal of sickness and poverty. Now, here's why this is a, a perversion of the gospel. Because if that is true, it then would lead us to believe that Jesus did not have enough faith because of the kind of death that he died on the cross. And when he prayed to his father, Father, it remove this cup from me. Or the kind of life that Jesus lived 33 years here on earth because he lived materialistically as a poor man. He, he lived in poverty. So when we hear words like this, we have to go to the Bible and let the Bible tell us what these words actually are. So the health and wealth of the prosperity gospel is a false gospel and it should be rejected uh, as followers of Christ. So what is this passage saying, particularly in verse 1. Let's break it down and look at uh, three words here. The first word is blessed. What does blessed mean? Blessed means fulfilled or content in the sense that one aligns themselves with the will of God. So when the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 4 verse 11, he says, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be Content. Now, Paul is writing from a place of he's experienced an abundance and he's also experienced famine. He's experienced being on the top of the mountain and he's experienced being underneath the mountain. So, what blessed is referring to is not self fulfillment, but rather a life that is oriented toward God and his purposes in and for our world. So, when you look at other places in scripture where the word blessed is used. So for example, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached in history. Do you know who preached that sermon? Jesus. Jesus. Sermon on the Mount. And he starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are. And he runs down a long list. Meek, poor in spirit, persecuted. And then it follows for they shall whatever, whatever, whatever it is. So the term blessed appears in Scripture in conjunction with an attitude or a conduct or a behaviors or a promise that should be believed, embodied, um, and embraced by Christians. So blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Let's talk about fear of the Lord, what it is not. Fear of God is, does not mean that you wake up every single day, 
with a, a, an impending sense of gloom and doom and punishment and condemnation and, and, you know, because you wrongly view that God is a grumpy, old, elderly senior citizen with a long, dirty, white beard who is watching me with a giant yardstick waiting for me to mess up. That's not fear of God. That's not a healthy biblical way of looking at fear of God. So what are some verses that help us to understand that? 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. How about when Paul writes in Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How about Proverbs 1.7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So one of the theologians uh, described fear of God this way. I love this. It means a foundational trust in God as the good creator who rules the universe and who brings success on the path of life to those striving to recognize the proper order of life and act in accordance with it. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. Let's look at the word walks, which is closely uh, tied to the word obedience. So the people in the Old Testament, here's what they knew about the word obedience. Obedience, if you were a, uh, an Israelite, uh, meant that you would observe the law as was recorded in the Torah, which the Torah is recorded in the first five books of the Old Testament. They call that the Pentateuch. Now, here was the dilemma that the people of God had in the Old Covenant in the Old Testament, that God's people, even on a daily basis, could not keep the whole law. On a daily basis, they would, they would fall short of that in their thinking, in their words, in their motivations, in their deeds, their actions. So when the people of God would fall short, the Bible calls that sin. So the standard is perfection, holiness, because God is perfect. He demands perfection. He demands perfect holiness. So when God's people failed to do that... They sinned. So they had an elaborate sacrificial system to handle sin. So the person of God would go and they would take an animal and they would slaughter the animal. They would shed the blood of the animal. It was a very gory, messy uh, place where they would make the sacrifices. Why did they kill the animal and shed the blood? To show the consequences and seriousness of sin, that sin leads to death. So the blood of the animal would be shed and it would then temporarily atone or cover the sins of the people. So basically year after year, moment after moment, it was a rinse and repeat cycle for the people of God. So when Jesus comes onto the scene, here's what Jesus does. This is amazing. Jesus keeps the law perfectly as he walks in perfect obedience to his heavenly father, Jesus never sins in this life. He lives the life that you and I can't live, and he lives it on our behalf. When Jesus lays his life down and is sacrificed as the lamb of God, his blood is shed once and for all to atone for the sins, my sins, past, present, and future, all at once are laid upon Jesus. It's an amazing exchange that happens. When I repent and place faith in Jesus, 
My sins go to him and his righteousness gets credited to me. So now, even as a Christian, when Will sins, how does God view me? God looks at me and he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ that covers me, that has atoned for my sin. It's incredible good news. So here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that I obey God, and the more I obey God, the more God will accept me, approve of me, and make me right or justify me. I don't obey, therefore I'm justified. Okay, that is a works-based religion. It's a treadmill religion that some Christians wrongly embrace and even still practice. But the gospel says it flips it. It says, I'm justified. I've been made right with Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done for me, he gets my life. I desire to obey. Do you see the difference in those? One is all about us and our ability to perform and keep the rules works-based. The other is all about what Jesus has accomplished on my behalf. And it frees me now to want to delight in and give him the totality of my life. So here's what's at stake. What's at stake is not our begrudging submission to walk in obedience. What's at stake is our joy. Our joy is at stake. God loves to love us and bless us as we love what God loves and we hate what God hates. And God, as a perfect heavenly father, loves us enough to even discipline us as his children when we don't walk in greater obedience to what he says we should be about. So, in verse 2 through 4, but 2 and 3 particularly, the psalmist is going to give us a threefold blessing based upon the kind of person that we just read about in verse 1. It's directly connected to verse 1. So let's unpack these. And there's three of these. And here's the first one. It's our work. It's a job. And our ability to provide food, right? The simple things of life. It's a wife and its children. Let me read the passage. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hand. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. So, if you back up into Psalm 127, verse 1, verse 1 cautions us to not work with the wrong motivations. So, contrary to our American culture that we are immersed in, fullness of life does not consist in the pursuit and the accomplishment of the American dream. Verse 1 would talk about that is, you are laboring in vain. So here's a street level way of saying that. A paycheck don't make you happy. And it doesn't matter how much money you make or how little money you make. It's all about our posture and all about our motivation. Now it's worth noting that we live in a culture that encourages, celebrates, values, promotes, rewards us to labor in vain, don't we? It's everywhere. We're immersed in it every single day. 
right? So from an early age, this might be true of you. From an early age, some of us are encouraged to pursue at all costs two things, grades and accolades. And the, more, the better my grades and the more accolades I have, the more attention that will give me. Are those wrong, sinful, bad in and of themselves? No. But if we frame them in the context of the American dream, here's where it goes horribly wrong. The better grades I have, the more accolades I have, the better school I can get into, the better school I go to, the, the degree that, from which that school came from, all these kind of things that will lead to me getting a better job. I can then have more money. I can then buy all the things I've always wanted to buy. And then eventually one day I will have accumulated so much that I'll be able to retire and go collect seashells on the seashore. That was a hard thing to say, by the way. I blew that in the first service, by the way. You can go back and listen to that. Um, It says, the lie of the American dream says, the more we have, the better off we'll be. Now, here's here's the tragedy, too, even among the church, is that Christians inside the church were not exempt from this type of thinking. When we look out at the church and what has been assessed and surveyed from the church, here's two statistics. One, that the average Christian in the United States only gives 2% of their income to the advancement of the mission and ministry to the local church. Also, people that are committed, say, I'm a member, I'm committed to the local church, actually only show up two times a month. Now, that's not to to bring guilt on anybody because there is no guilt in the gospel. But I do believe that it exposes something even in our hearts as followers of Christ. Are we laboring in vain? Do we have the right perspective on why God blesses us with a job? Jesus has a lot to say about money. A lot to say about the kingdom. He says in Matthew 6, 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Do that first and all these other things will be added unto you. How about the sobering passage in Matthew 16, verse 26. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his very soul? Very sobering. So what is God's desired order of our calling. How should our job kind of fit within the larger picture? Here's an easy way to think about it. Your first and primary calling, if you're a Christian, is this. To be a faithful and fruitful disciple of Jesus. To walk in his ways, to fear the Lord. If God has blessed you uh, with a marriage, second, it's to be a husband or wife. Third, if God's blessed you with children, it's to be a mother or a father. Fourth, Whatever else you do. Oh, I'm a pastor, I'm a teacher, I'm whatever, whatever, whatever. Now, here's where we get ourselves into great, great trouble. When we begin, you know, you ever seen the guy on the street, you know, like has four cups and you like put the ball under one cup and he's doing this kind of thing and you're supposed to tell with the cup. We start doing that with our biblical calling and mandate. When we take our job, we elevate it above my family. Or I elevate my children above my marriage. Or I elevate my wife above being a faithful and fruitful disciple of Jesus first. What happens in those moments when we get all tangled up and out of order is that we miss out on receiving the fuller blessings that God wants to give us because we have elevated something, one of those four things, to its wrongful place. And in so doing, we've created an idol. 
Even a marriage and a job and food on my table and money and all these things which are good gifts from the Father can become ultimate things and thus becoming an idol. So that's the first one. The second one, your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house and your children like olive shoots around your table. So let's talk for a moment about God's design for families. And I'm going to preface it uh, by saying this, that, that I want to be incredibly sensitive and I want to be incredibly aware as I talk about this because we are all over the map when it comes to this word family and to this topic. And here's, here's a few things that come to mind. Well, I don't have one yet. So you have bitterness about that or some unrighteous anger. Or I had one and the wheels came off. Or like there's pain, there's loss, there's regret, there's, there's turmoil just associated when we begin to talk about the word family. Or you're here and you're single. And you say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not married or I don't have children. Well, can I encourage you to think about this? Unless God has called you to a life of singleness and celibacy, which is a wonderful thing, and God does that and uses that profoundly, then one day probably, odds are, you'll have a wife or a husband and a family. So the principles that I'm getting ready to unpack are relevant and true and provide great opportunities for us to grow in together. So let's look at family. Uh, We see in Matthew uh, chapter 28, verses 46 through 50, Jesus extend the definition of what family is as he moves family beyond just a core nucleus. Do you remember his mom shows up and say, hey, tell him my son is here. And this is what Jesus says. Anyone who does the will of my father is my brother and sister, which seems incredibly insensitive to leave mom outside. But what he's doing is he is extending our understanding of family. It means this, that all of us have at least one family, unless you were hatched, and if that's the case, this does not apply to you. We have at least one family. If you are a Christian, meaning that you have repented and placed faith in Jesus, you have two families, that we've been adopted in the family of God. So it means I'm a part of the family of Salem Chapel. That's Little C Church. But we're also a part of the Big C Church with other Christians in our city, other gospel churches in our city and around the world. So as we get into husband and wife and children, I want to first start with, I want you to take notice of the connection between the husband and the wife. And the wife is called a fruitful vine. So to get understanding in context, let's go back to the beginning. Genesis 2 verse 18 The first part of that verse, do you remember the story? God creates everything. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. The first time God says it's not good is this. It is not good for man to be what? Alone. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that it is not good for man to be single. Or woman to be single, but for us to be alone. So let me speak to the singles for just a moment. The single life can be incredibly satisfying and fulfilling. Look at the life of Jesus and look at the Apostle Paul, right? A life of singleness can and should lead us to view Jesus as my greatest treasure. And he is sufficient 
for everything in my life, whether I have a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, nine children and counting or whatever it is. Here's the worst mistake I see singles make is that if you're single, because you maybe don't understand this passage correctly in the whole of scripture or maybe you have a limited understanding, it's for you to rush into a dating relationship with a man or a woman who has not been tested or proven in what the Bible says we need to be formed in, the qualities, the traits, the characteristics of a godly man and a godly woman. It is better for you to stay single and trust God to bring you that person in time. Singleness can be good and healthy and beautiful and wonderful. Here's what's not good. Aloneness and isolation. And this is the principle that I, I want to unpack here for just a moment. Genesis 2, verse 22 and uh, 23. It says that God formed woman, Eve, from and for the man. That they are connected and attached to one another. And when you read the second half of Genesis 2, verse 18, he says to the man, I will make a helper fit for you. That word helper is very interesting in the original language because it means two things simultaneously. It means like and it means against. And all the husbands are going, yeah, I get the against one, right? (laughs) Nervous laughter. Yeah, I get it. But the word doesn't mean in an adversarial way. It means in a way that is complementary as they steward and manage together what God has entrusted them. Our relationships and how we are even brought into the world and how we were created in the image of God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, God loves relationships because he's always been in a relationship with himself. One in three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we need to see others and have others around us to more fully experience and reflect the divine imprint that is cast on and into every human being. So here's three quick, I usually don't ever do three-point sermons, so this is a new one for me, but here's three simple statements on families that that I think are helpful that help us understand uh, verse three, hopefully better. Here's the first one. God blesses us with families as a picture of who he is. God blesses us with families as a picture of who he is. Now, when you see that statement and you see the word family and picture in the same, uh, in the same uh, statement, that sends you, maybe some of you, to like not a good place. Because it sends you to those family pictures that you guys have done. You know what I'm talking about? Where everybody on your family tree shows up at the same place at the same time, wearing the same clothes. And it doesn't matter if it becomes a COVID super spreader. We are going to get the perfect picture. And so you line everybody up, and then one, two, three, everybody say cheese, but underneath your breath, you're not saying cheese, you're saying something else, right? Is that just my family? I don't know. Maybe it is. I don't know. Think of it this way. God attaches who he is and what he does to a metaphor, a father and his children, a groom and a bride. We see through the biblical narrative, God worked through families, Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham. Jesus had an earthly family, but also the disciples, the New Testament becomes the family, a body on mission to bring the kingdom near. So the question becomes, 
But before I give you the question, let me give you a quote. So I love, and uh, Tim Keller, a uh, former pastor of a church in New York, uh, wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. Listen, very profound. He says, when, quote, when over the years someone has seen you at your worst and knows you with all strengths and flaws, yet commits him or herself to you wholly, it is a consummate experience. To be loved and not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. So good. What do your relationships that you are in? Here's the question. Your marriage, your dating relationships, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbor, your church family. What do they paint to a watching world about God's love, God's mercy, kindness, goodness, humility, grace. What do they say? And the, the ironic thing about relationships is the things that cause us the most stress are directly tied to our relationships, aren't they? Think about that. Why is that? Because I believe it is the primary, one of the primary ways that God sanctifies us to make him more and more like his son, Jesus. He will put heavenly sandpaper people right beside you for you to brush up against to make you smoother and to make you more like Jesus. Here's the second statement. God blesses us with families as places for flourishing and growth. Uh, do you remember the, it's referred to as the culture mandate in uh, Genesis 1, 28? God blessed them, meaning Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You know the great thing about them obeying that is that all of us that are listening to this today are direct recipients of that, of being fruitful and multiplying. And they were fruitful and they multiplied and on and on and on, and here we are in 2021. The wife here in this passage is pictured as a fruitful vine, that she is growing, that she's fruitful, that she's bearing fruit, that she's producing wine. The children here are compared to olive shoots. So when I did a little uh, research on how an olive tree grows, here's an interesting fun fact. This is free. Olive trees are not cultivated from seeds. Olive trees, rather, or new trees, come from the shoots that grow off of the tree. Or around the tree, rather. Very interesting. So it means it's a picture of our children, if God has blessed you with children, or one day is going to bless you with children, as trees reaching for the sky, growing in good soil. So it begs the question for us, men, are we providing the right kind of soil for our wives to grow as fruitful vines? Moms and dads, are we providing the gospel ecosystem, the, the soil for our children to flourish? I'm going to quote a non-theologian. This is not in the scripture, and, but the, con, the, the, the thought, the concept is really, really good. There's a guy by the name of the boss. Anybody know who the boss is? Bruce Springsteen. Right? So if you're Gen Z, X, Y, W, whatever, you'll have to go Google uh, Bruce Springsteen. Uh, but anyway, he wrote a song called Long Time Coming. The song talks about 
his relationship with his father. And in talking about that song, here's what he said. This is very profound. We are ghosts or we are ancestors in our children's lives. We either lay our mistakes and burdens upon them and we haunt them as ghosts, or we assist them in laying our old burdens down and we free them from the chains of our own flawed behaviors. And as ancestors, we walk alongside of them, assisting them to find their own way in some sense of transcendence. And what he was saying was, are we ghosts that are haunting our children? Or are we ancestors that are walking with our children and assisting them? Here's the third thing. God blesses us with families as platforms for kingdom advancement. So Adam and Eve, they go forth with the culture mandate. They're fruitful and they multiply. And so here's what it means. Ultimately, on this side of heaven, our families, now I don't know if you have like a vision statement for your family, and vision statements can be kind of cheesy, I get that, but like it's good to maybe think about like what is the purpose of our family? What's the vision of our family? Have you ever thought of your family this way? Your children this way? That our families are for the flourishing and the discipling of nations. Have you ever thought about your children that way? For the discipling of nations. If that is the vision, it means then we don't hold our children back as pets and possessions to live under our tight, tight control. And when we do, by the way, parents, we handicap our children. Psalm 127 verse 4 gives a little bit more insight into this. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Even the Psalms talk about that our children are like arrows of redemption to be shot into the cities as we disciple the nations. I've experienced this um, with my first two daughters and as my son's kind of praying about like, you know, a vision for, like, his life. Does it keep him here? Does it, keep, you know, take him away? The first time I experienced this, I remember, I mean, you know, I noticed about it. I was a pastor for a lot of years, and, um, and I would preach this passage, and I would, you know, when I'd lead a men's conference or we'd speak to, you know, married couples or we're doing counseling, like, you know, the vision and the plan for the family, I would always talk about, you know, men, they're, they're arrow, they're, they're in your quiver, and they're, you're going to pull them out, you're going to shoot them into the cities. Well, the first time I had to, I had to chew on this one personally was uh, my, my first daughter who graduated high school. She got accepted to the uh, only uh, uh, university in the country she wanted to go to. She prayed about it. She said, Dad, I don't, I don't, and Mom, I, said, I, don't, I don't feel God's calling me to do that. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> help us understand that more deeply. Um, and, uh, and she had incredible reasons. Like, yep, you prayed about that. I get that. And she, through a series of relationships, uh, got connected to Bedford, England, and she's felt the Lord was leading her to go and work at a, a nonprofit, which means you get paid nothing in a foreign country, especially England, off of your visa, and to work with a, a nonprofit called King's Arm Project, which works with the least of the people in the city. The thing you don't know about England is they have incredible homelessness, so it's addicted people. Like, it's, it's bad. And it was the first time, and so she's telling me this, and in my mind, I'm thinking, man... I'm going to have to really pull back on that bowstring to shoot her all the way across the ocean. You know what I wanted to do? And I'll just be honest with you. I wanted to turn my bow and arrow down and just shoot it right into the ground in front of me. I'm like, no, that passage does not apply to our family. That's for everybody else. It's been incredible to see our kids grow and flourish and 
and be shot out as arrows of redemption. Parents, we are not owners of our children. We are stewards and we are ambassadors for them. The the family, I believe, that's why I'm so passionate about this, the family, I believe, is the primary place for discipleship and mission. There is no substitute for that because I believe it's the place where a watching world gets an incredible portrait of what the gospel means and looks like as our families are on mission together. Verse 5 and 6 uh, ends with an expansion of the blessing. It's going to use the word here, prosperity. Prosperity biblically means um, peace, wholeness, and goodness. And it's going to be kind of a, a twofold extended blessing. Uh, one, it's a picture of a city that flourishes, incredible concept, and the enjoyment of a long life. Verse 5 The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children, peace be upon Israel. Now, the word Zion is a, a word that was used to describe the place where God dwelt. So in the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, as Jesus comes onto the scene, if you wanted to experience God, you went to the temple. So the Psalms of Ascent that we've been in, these are the Psalms that they are singing as they ascend the city for one of three main Jewish festivals to go to the temple to worship God because that's where God dwelt. Now, the New Covenant says this. This is incredible. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, that we don't go to the temple anymore, that we are the temple, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And wherever we go, the gospel goes. So the threefold blessing that we just talked about not only benefits the person as described in verse 1, but it also has a benefit for an entire geography. Think of this. There's several places in in the biblical narrative, but Jeremiah 29 is probably the the simplest place to go. Jeremiah 29, what has happened is the people of God, the nation of Israel, because of their rebellion, because of worshiping false idols, are exiled. God sends them into exile, and a group of them find themselves in a city that hates God. They don't worship God. They don't love God. They mock you for, for that. And here's what God says to the people that he exiled in verse 7, chapter 29. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God tells them, buy houses, plant gardens, marry, pray, seek the good. It means this, that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. That everything that we experience from God as he blesses us, it's so that we can bless others. It's not a dead sea religion where we receive all these things and we just hold them and it just the water begins to stink over time. We're blessed to be a blessing. We have received peace from the Prince of Peace in order to bring God's peace and message of reconciliation to those around us. Did you know that the triad, what does it say on Greensboro High Point, is our Jerusalem? That's where God in his sovereignty has providentially placed each of us for his glory and for the advancement of the kingdom. And here's what it means. It means that we need all churches, not just Salem Chapel, 
in our city to flourish. We need all gospel-centered churches to flourish. Why? Because the more people we have that, that know and love and follow and fear the Lord and walk in obedience, joyful obedience to God, it means that the light of the gospel gets brighter and brighter and brighter and it shines into the darkness of our city. Remember, it's not just about our church. It's about Jesus' church and connected the Big C Church to every other church. So, as I close, if you're listening on this today and you're not a Christian, can I just encourage you to like, maybe not think so much about wife, husband, children, blessing, all that kind of stuff. Can, can I encourage you to just maybe take a moment and think about a couple of things that God says? God is patient toward you. 2 Peter 3 talks about that God's not slow as some count slow. He's patient, not wishing any to perish, but to all to reach repentance. Let me tell you that everything in your life that you have experienced that is good is simply God's common grace upon your life. Paul talks about it in Romans 2 verse 4, for his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So can I encourage you today, uh, the threefold blessing and like our city and all that kind of stuff, receive today the eternal blessing of salvation. Pastor John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is really good news that I pray you embrace and believe for yourself. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, could I encourage you today and tomorrow and the days to come to walk in and by the Spirit because we cannot do this on our own strength but to order your life by walking in the fear of the Lord. And as you do, you know what happens? You actually begin to see and view and experience the world around us differently. Christ followers understand hopefully and realize that the goal of this life is not to earn divine blessings, but simply to receive the simple elements of life as divine blessings. James 1 verse 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Our hope, my friends, is not in the blessings. If your hope is in the blessings, you have made an idol and you need to repent and experience God's goodness and faithfulness to forgive you. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in Christ. We are not to worship the blessings and we're not to worship the gifts. We are to worship the one who has given us these blessings and these gifts. The blessed life does not mean that we will not experience hard times and that we will not go through hard things. But as we do, it's like the song that we sang just a few minutes ago. As we do, we do not lose sight of this truth that God loves to love us and bless us as his adopted sons and daughters. Let's pray together.
Father, you are the good, good Father. Everything good in this life, it comes, it comes from you. It's to point us to you. It's to remind us that it's not about us, but it's about your goodness and your faithfulness at all times and the things that we can see and the things that we cannot see. But I, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in the lives of each person individually, you would show us all where we have elevated things above being a faithful and fruitful disciple. But I pray that we would not view our wife, our family, our job, all of these things as good gifts from you to be enjoyed to fuel my lifestyle, but rather to advance your kingdom. Lord, show us where we fall short. Remind us that the blood of Christ has covered even those sins that we might be in today. But I pray that we'd be a people that are quick to confess and quick to repent so that we might continue to walk in joyful obedience and experience the more fuller blessings of what it looks like when we live our lives according to your order of what you say is good and right and true. Thank you, Jesus, that you have met our our highest and deepest and biggest need. That it wasn't money that we needed. It wasn't greater health that we needed. It wasn't more wisdom that we needed. We needed a Savior to save us from the penalty of our sins. You have lavished us with grace upon grace. May that frame the way we live our lives, the decisions we make. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.